Hey, I'm Kelly McEvers, and Embedded is back. President Donald Trump has no record of public service, but he does have a record in business and on TV. In our latest round of stories, we introduce you to the people who were there as he built an empire and a name. Listen on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Here's an interesting study, Paula. You ready for some science? I I am. A new study from the UK finds that people spend twice as much time sitting on the loo each week as they do exercising. About three hours total. Three hours total. Three hours total time sitting on the can. Okay, well, there's a simple solution for that, of course, which is the uh, toilet treadmill. Right. (laughs) Does that surprise you? It doesn't surprise me. Really? I mean, because no one, no one wants to exercise and everyone wants to use the bathroom. I guess. It's just, uh, to me, and three hours, that seems high. Well, and the That's committing to like a half an hour a day on the, on the toilet. Well, I don't think it's all at once. Isn't it broken up? <laughs> I think that I think differs according to gender. No, yeah. no, no, no. <laughs> I think there's a gender thing. entirely wrong. Really? Yeah. Because I just, I just, usually what I do is at the end of the week, I'll spend two and a half hours and then I'm good. Yeah, that's... <laughs> It's not right? That's not the right way. No, no wonder everything hurts. And okay. the immediate consequence of not using the toilet is very different than the immediate consequence of not exercising. Um, <laughs> have you ever been at a friend's house and uh, you went to flush the toilet like you're at a party or something? Uh-huh. And you f- go to flush the toilet and it just keeps rising yes. and rising? Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm pretty sure I lose weight when that happens. Just flop sweat, right? Yeah. yeah. Yes, yeah, exactly. Because immediately you can project out to where this is going. And yeah. It's going to just yeah. a terrible place. Yeah, it is going to a terrible place. It's usually it's sneaking out the window. Yeah. Sometimes people have the kind of um, flush buttons, too. There's a code to it. Are you talking about the, the high flow, low flow I might be. Buttons that, that determine, like, you, you, you go low flow if you've just peed, and if you've pooped, you go with, with the high flow? Is that what it is? That's what it is. <laughs> I always thought there was, like, something Freemason about it. I thought, like... No. It's a code. I've never been able to break the code. It's, it's not that hard. Whatever, whatever symbol is bigger, be it a full moon versus a half moon or two dots versus one dot, the bigger one is poop. That's just it. <laughs> it's not mysterious. The bigger one is always poop. That's what you say? The bigger one is poop? That's that sounds like a second grader's PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> from NPR, it's live from the Poundstone Institute, where every show is like that dream where we have a test and we haven't studied. On today's show, what we learned by cheating at Monopoly. You know you've done it. Yeah, even you, Thimble. And is your scientific aptitude determined by what's between your ears or what's between your legs? We take a fascinating look at the P in physics. Plus, comedy legend Lily Tomlin stops by to take our personality test and determine what ringtone she would be. I'm Chief of Research Adam Felber, and now, here's your host, the director of the Poundstone Institute, Paula Poundstone! Thank you very much. Welcome, everybody, to the Poundstone Institute. And if you think we're just making educated guesses, you got that half right. (laughs) So, Adam, where does our quest for knowledge begin today? Well, our first topic today is the gender gap. Now, the gender gap in science jobs is really deep. Eight out of ten rats making their way through mazes right now are dudes. 
Really? Our next guest, Kate Wilson, is a professor of the University of New South Wales, Canberra. And she and her colleagues have come up with a fascinating theory about why that may be. And it goes back to childhood pissing contests. Kate, welcome to the Poundstone Institute. Thank you very much, Adam. Thanks for having me. Okay, Kate, lay it out for us. What is your theory? So let me start by saying, so we published our idea, and it made a bit of a splash. <laughs> but then there was a bit of kind of backsplash that we weren't quite anticipating. So I just want to start by saying, we are not saying that boys are better at physics than girls. Okay. What we've seen with our data, so we've got um, data for high school students, about 1,000 students a year, and they do, uh, it's a competitive test. And what we're seeing is that, on average, boys do better on this test. So the question is, why? What test? Okay, so this is the Australian Science Olympiads um, examination in physics. So it's the first step in possible selection for the Australian team for the International Physics Olympiad. And if you go to the competition, there are very few girls there, which is really worrying. Mm -hmm. So we look at our data. We've got lots and lots of questions. And the gap is not consistent by question. There's only one content area where we consistently see a big gap, and that's projectile motion. So do you know what projectile motion is? The motion of projectiles. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so girls don't do as well on projectile motion questions. And your, your, your surmise here, or your theory, is that that's because they don't get to observe themselves peeing when they're little. Is that correct? Well, look, that's one aspect. And plenty of people have put forward, oh, ball games, ball games, ball games. But, you know, plenty of girls play ball games. Yeah. But almost no girls engage in pissing contests. Well, I have to tell you something, Kate. A couple of years ago, I was going backpacking with my oldest daughter, and we shopped at REI, and we bought a ton of stuff. And at the end of the, yeah, there was a, a, a person helping me. And by the time we seemed to have covered every category of what we needed, the woman sort of signaled me quietly. I thought maybe she was offering me drugs. It was very, uh, she was like, you know, there's one more thing. And she almost whispered it. And she, she said, um, this is really helpful on a backpacking trip. And she brought me out a pee like a man gizmo. How'd it work? It did has, you try it? Uh, I, I did. Yeah, we took it. And uh, uh, it's almost like, you know, the gallon thing that you, if you ran out of gas and you had to go get gas. And like a uh, siphony thing, yeah. The thing that like has the, the nozzle and a, and a cap to it that you screw on. But upside down, I'm guessing. Right. So you would press the little cup. Uh, up to your private parts, and, and then you would pee through this tunnel thing. Okay, so Kate, can I ask you then, given that, would you say that could be the reason why today Paula Poundstone runs an institute? I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> well, I got to tell you something, Kate. I mean, I don't like to stereotype men and women, but the truth is, after we did that, when we get lost, we wouldn't ask directions. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just telling you what I know, Kate. So, Kate, where, where did you come up with this? I understand it might have been um, observing uh, as a parent of small boys. Okay, so I have twin boys. Aha. Uh -huh. Oh, boy, you can do experiments with them. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and you, you've observed, and I quote, the great delight young males take in urination. What are some of ac the activities you're talking about? Okay, so I live out in the country. We have no visible neighbors which means my boys feel pretty free to behave in ways that would not necessarily be considered acceptable in the city. Uh-huh. So I've walked outside the front door hearing, you know, cackling to find the pair of them standing on the porch and peeing on the ducks as the ducks walk past. 
Uh-huh. Um, that sounds awesomely fun. Yeah, yeah, and it does. By the way, Kate, that's in no way exclusive to living in the country. Uh, yeah. <laughs> my kids were raised in Santa Monica, and all three of them at the mall. Uh, and I have two girls, by the way. Uh, and they were constantly peeing on ducks? They find a duck, they just pee on it. That's right. <laughs> it's part of the reason my daughter Allie's a vegan. Right. She's yes. like, don't eat that. Yeah. She's you know where it's been. Yeah. Okay, but Kate, let's take it back to you and your boys. Okay, twins. Imagine you had a twin. What's your obvious target for this kind of competition? The other kid. Exactly. So they try to pee on each other? Jesus, it has happened. They're presidential yes. material. Exactly. <laughs> or at least a fine Russian escort. Yes. Presidential consort material. So, but, but Kate, um, so they're peeing on each other. I'm, wait, I'm waiting for the science to kick in here. I also have a daughter. So I've got a, a younger daughter as well, and she has tried to join in. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, the boys weren't happy when they both came in after she peed on their feet. Oh, okay. Yep, yep, that'll happen. Yeah, yeah. You better yeah, move yeah, well. further out into the country, Kate. <laughs> <laughs> but the link to physics there. So when they pee, yeah. they do see a projectile. Yeah. Yeah. They, and it's not just like throwing a ball where you see it and then it's somewhere else and then it's somewhere else. They see an entire arc all at once. Right. Yeah. And they're controlling it. So if you think about it as an educational activity, it's actually absolutely ideal. Yeah. Do you want to test this theory? Is there any way that you can test it? Because it sounds like an interesting theory, but it, it seems almost test proof. Can you imagine applying for ethics approval for that? Well, Kate, now I'm not an, I am not a physics uh, aficionado by any stretch. I didn't do well in physics at all when I was in high school. And I had a bladder infection for much of my <laughs> freshman year. Um, but uh, it strikes me that there must be something more to physics as a whole topic than just um, projectile motion. Yeah, absolutely. And that's really the argument that we're putting forward is that projectile motion, it's one little thing. The reason this topic is a problem is because in most curricula, it's first. Oh. So at the very start of the, the, a girl's experience in physics, she hits this topic and she doesn't do as well on the tests as the boys. And the boys are just like, this is as easy as piss. Literally, yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. That huh. makes sense to me. So, so you just don't teach it first. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Don't teach it first and don't act like it's so important. Well, Kate, thank you so much for showering us with this information. <laughs> I feel not only soaked with knowledge, but somehow very relieved, too. <laughs> Dr. Kate Wilson is a professor in the School of Engineering and Information Technology and the Learning and Teaching Group at the University of New South Wales, Canberra. Kate, thank you so much for joining us at the Poundstone Institute. Thanks, thank Kate. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, take care. Thanks. Here at the Institute, we don't just talk about other people's studies, we also conduct our own, which is why you may have noticed a slowly rising temperature from the Bunsen burner beneath your seat. <laughs> We're also conducting a survey, and this week we're asking you, have you ever secretly planned an acceptance speech? And if so, give us a couple of lines. How about you, Paula? Your acceptance speech, you must have been planning one. 
I've planned, I've actually planned many, not, not the whole thing, but you know, the opening phrases of song. But you know, for years, I, I don't know why, but I always thought someone was gonna give me a surprise party. Wow. Yeah, like I always think like I'm gonna, you know, my house is dark when I'm walking in, not even for my birthday or anything, just, you know, some people think like a guy's gonna jump out out of the bushes and ax me to death, but I think I'm gonna go into my house and people are gonna jump out and go, surprise! And you spent years expecting that to happen. Yeah, yeah. And, and I it? always have a little, like, I wanna thank everyone, and you know, you've oh. all meant so much to me. Can we hear a little bit of that? Yeah, that's it. I wanna thank everyone, and you've all meant so much to me. I didn't say that I'd labored at it. I said that, <laughs> <laughs> you know, after a while, when it doesn't come off, y y you stop practicing. Yeah, I could see that after yeah. a while, yeah. Yeah. Well, our statistics department is crunching the numbers as we speak, and we'll have the results later in the show. Also, coming up, the great comedian and actress Lily Tomlin comes by to take our personality test and find out what ringtone she would be. Okay, Adam, let's continue our search for knowledge. What are we digging into next? Well, we're going to find out all about money. Specifically, does money make you a jerk? What do you think, Paula? You know what? I'm willing to test it out. <laughs> In the interest of science, I volunteer myself to become wealthy for this dangerous study. Yeah, it could turn you into a jerk. You're willing to accept that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's find out. Our next guest, Paul Piff, is a professor at UC Irvine, and he looked into the money jerk connection using a study based on the game Monopoly. He's here to tell us about it. Paul, welcome to the Poundstone Institute. Oh, it's great to be here. I've been waiting and waiting for an invitation. Finally, one came through. Well, you're now a senior fellow here. So, first of all, lay out how you did this study with Monopoly. We ran a pretty simple experiment where we brought in pairs of strangers. They didn't know each other. These were university students. And with the flip of a coin, assigned one person to be a rich player in this kind of rigged game of Monopoly. So one person just got more money, two times as much money to play the game. They got to roll two dice instead of one, so they got to move around a lot more. Oh. And they collected a far larger salary when they passed go than our uh, poor player did. So the poor player got half as much money. They got, got to roll that one measly die. Sure. Die and, and they so could and so only forth. buy Baltic Avenue. Right. <laughs> or rent it. If yeah. that. Now, now, Paul, if that. As, they, as they started playing, uh, what did you see in the privileged player's behavior? Yeah, it quickly becomes apparent that one person has somehow gotten a lot more to play the game with than the other. Uh -huh. And yet, over the course of just a couple of minutes, the rich player starts kind of smacking the board with his or her piece as he or she moves So they around. get louder. Kind of, they get louder. They're making their presence known. They're making themselves known. Uh, they take up more space, so they become more expansive and dominant in Fantastic. their posture. Uh-huh. The rich player starts to take more pretzels. They even took more snacks. Wow. As the game's unfolding, the rich player kind of inevitably becomes cold and calculating, uh, way less likely to attend to the plight of that poor other player that they've been paired with, and far more likely to kind of, uh, in nonverbal and verbal ways, celebrate their success, belittle the other player, and basically establish themselves as better than the wow. other person. This have is you breaking ever... my heart, yeah, by the way. Yeah, it's horrible. <laughs> Paul, yeah, have you ever is. played Monopoly with our president? 
So wait, wait no, no. you interviewed the players after the game. Tell us what the winners were likely to say about their victories, because this is fascinating. Yeah, so, and this, what, this is what surprised me, I think, the most, is that after the game, we interviewed all the players. When we asked the rich players who inevitably won why, not a single person talked about the flip of the coin. And across the board, they were far more likely to talk about their individual know-how, their prowess, their skills at the game, their business acumen, the things that they did to win the game. But you only used Monopoly because if you had used the game of life... Yeah. You know, the game yeah. of life teaches you a little something as you go along, Paul. You know, <laughs> because, you know, it's a little more uh, level playing field. Even if you get a, a, a head start in the game of life, you know, you can land on get a kid. <laughs> yeah. And right. that's just going to bring you to rack and ruin financially. Well, to me, that says that the, that the game of Monopoly is more like life than life. Surprisingly, or, or it captures certain dynamics that are easier to capture than perhaps in life. Yeah. It makes it sound like money does make you act like a jerk, but did you draw any conclusions as to why? Because I have. Okay, but wait, wait. Wouldn't that show up in the Yankees then? Does it not? Because I... <laughs> are you... Aren't they paid like the most amount of any baseball team? They used to be. They're, they I think they're number be? three on the list right now, this season. Yeah. But yeah, they're historically yeah. the highest paid baseball team. Yeah. And are they jerks? Somebody said yes. What makes you say yes about the Yankees being jerks for being well paid? Uh, years of following baseball. Years of following baseball? Can you give me an example? And Alex Rodriguez gives one night stands a gift basket on the way home. <laughs> Does anybody have his number? <laughs> All right, before we wander too far afield... Um, I love a tip. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know why that's better than not giving a bis gift basket. Honestly. Uh, or isn't better. Yeah. Uh, that so guy's just upset that now his one-night stands want a gift basket. Right. All right, I How, guess I'm no Alex Rodriguez. Yeah. You know, I wonder if there's a way you can register before you have sex. <laughs> this is the Amazon you know, wish I love Three Musketeers. <laughs> Uh, Paul, back to you, as long as Paula brought up candy. Um, you did another study with a jar of candy, did you not? Yeah, so we used, we used a jar of candy to measure how much candy people would take from a jar of candy that was reserved for children. So they were told the candy jar was for kids. Yeah, they were explicitly told. So, Somebody's so, crying. Yeah, we, I know, it, it, sounds, it sounds almost like a, like a Simpsons episode, but we brought in adults from the broader community into the lab, gave them the opportunity to take... Uh, some candy that we were monitoring, unbeknownst to them, that we identified to them as being reserved for children who were taking studies in a nearby lab. So we just recorded, without people knowing, how much candy participants took and found that rich players actually took, on average, four times as much candy as did poor players. Okay, but there's other elements there. Were those rich players generally fat? <laughs> You know, we didn't, we didn't, we should have weighed people when they came in. You'd be surprised. We didn't. Uh, but actually what we did in this experiment was a little more complicated. We actually made people feel rich or feel poor. Right. We found that there was this kind of temporary feeling of being better off than someone else that made a person, irrespective of how much money they actually had, that made them 
uh, behave in this more selfish way by taking more candy. Right, which is why I want to get to your opinion of why. Why is money, real or imagined, so likely to turn people into jerks? Money, like power, gets you to be able to do things that you yourself want to do. It allows you to be self-reliant. You're more independent and autonomous. You're more focused on yourself because you can be. And I think it's that basic experience, real or imagined, that kind of gets people to prioritize themselves right. and they become less sensitive to relationships, less sensitive to other people, less sensitive to other people's welfare because after all, they don't need them. Paul Piff, I don't know if you know how much money I'm making here at the Institute. <laughs> is, that, is that information public? Uh, only some of it. <laughs> yeah, not the gifts. No, uh, not the well, gift Paul, basket. I, I I've been just, getting a basket I, from a guy in the third row. I could, I could probably guess how much you're making just by virtue of how nice you've been to me on the phone. So oh. I'm going to guess you're not making very much at all. Well, <laughs> you know, you seem to have nailed it, uh, Mr. Pitt. Okay. <laughs> well, I am so impressed with your research that we're going to name oh, a building so on the Poundstone Institute campus after you. Then we're going to name three more buildings after you. Then we're going to trade them all in for a hotel. <laughs> And watch me become a jerk in the process. I don't think it could happen. Paul, thank you so much. Paul Piff. Paul Piff right, is an associate so professor in the Department of Psychology and Social Behavior at the University of California, Irvine. Paul Piff, thank you so much for joining us at the Poundstone Institute. Thank you all. It's been an honor. Thanks, Paul. Are there any filthy rich people here in the room? Okay. I think we've made the ground fertile for them identifying themselves. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I don't know why they wouldn't step forward right now. There's lots more Poundstone Institute to come today, but when our show does end, we don't want you to get bored and end up talking to your kids or something. So let's hear about something else you can listen to later. Hey, I'm Kelly McEvers, and Embedded is back. President Donald Trump has no record of public service, but he does have a record in business and on TV. In our latest round of stories, we introduce you to the people who were there as he built an empire and a name. Listen on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, we hear about your secret acceptance speeches. But first, time to add some data to the PPP, the Poundstone Personality P Survey. Our subject today is the legendary Lily Tomlin. Maybe you first saw her on Laugh-In, or in 9 to 5, or maybe you're new to the bandwagon and you're getting to know her on Grace and Frankie on Netflix. Lily Tomlin, welcome to the Poundstone Institute. Well, thank you. Thank you a lot. Oh, thanks for being here, Lily. You're known for so many different things, stand-up, movies, TV. But when people recognize you on the street and they say hello and they say I love you, what do they usually tell you that they liked? If they say they love me, they usually have, like, funny clothes on. They're acting weird. And it's not because they know me from show business. They just have focused on me that day on the street and said that I resembled, and somehow I resemble something that they love. 
No, they always say uh, Ernestine. You know, Ernestine's a big deal. Oh, the telephone yeah. operator. Sure, and Ernestine laughing. is a big deal. And, and a lot of people. No, a lot of people stop me about Grace and Frankie. Oh, Girl, oh. You know, young women and older women. Yeah, you know when when I just mentioned it here, like you could hear this, like oh, it's it's <laughs> so great, and it's that's it's, the sound I made the night that Claudette Colbert <laughs> came to one of my shows. <laughs> no, it's given me like a, a more liberality with you know with my own uh, body parts because there's a lot of vagina references in that show sure. and, and well mean well meant too uh, well no, meant informative i i think it's a great show for women who thought oh they were o- the only one about one thing like isn't there a scene at one point where you see like a chin hair on uh, grace yeah i do i do and i i yank it out yeah <laughs> But, you know, I mean, the first time I ever saw a chin hair on myself, which was many, many years ago, I thought, my God, I'm a man. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a horrible feeling. There's a lot of women who have chin hairs. Right. But who would think there'd be one on Jane Fonda, for God's sakes? <laughs> <laughs> well, she was as surprised as I was. <laughs> um, now, you have, you have a longtime partner, uh, uh, Jane Wagner, and you've been together for how long? Uh, it'll be 47 years in March. Wow. <laughs> well, well, first of all, congratulations. And second of all, that's unusual in Hollywood, right? Because, uh, and you also work together, is that right? Yeah, we do. I guess it's unusual. People remark on it, you know, occasionally. Uh, you did that amazing show. It was on Broadway and, and toured the country. Uh, the, uh, the Search for Intelligent Life. The Search for Intelligent Life in the Universe. And at the end of the show, you did this wonderful thing. You gave credit to your, your partner and the writer of the, the play, uh, Jane Wagner. And a, by having a big screen come down and a giant picture of Jane uh, came up. You know, it was like I was so tired of Jane not getting the credit for the writing and so, um, I mean, cause her, but her name was up on the marquee very broadly seen. And, uh, but, no, you know, no matter what I do, everybody thinks it's just me and somehow I'm, I, like, surpass God. So I wanted Jane to be, um, you know, rightfully acknowledged for yeah. her authorship. Yeah. But most people thought she had passed away. <laughs> <laughs> so I stopped doing that. <laughs> Writers can't catch a break. There's something about a picture that kind of, I don't know, has that connotation, I guess. You know what? But, Lily, maybe you didn't know this, but the words in memoriam were on the bottom of the screen. (laughs) All those flowers probably didn't help either. That could have been an oversight on your part. Um, So, Lily, one time, okay, for for listeners uh, on the Live from the Poundstone Institute that aren't in Los Angeles and don't know this, um, if you hear go into a car wash or uh, a dry cleaners, sure. um, there, uh, for some odd reason, there is a, sort of a bizarre tradition here in Los Angeles that's shocking when you first see it, which is um, there's all these pictures of celebrities. Signed. Uh, signed, right, to the owner of the car wash. You know, dear Carl, you know, <laughs> nobody yeah. scrubs it better. So... <laughs> Uh, um, so I was in a luggage store years ago, like a, 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 a suitcase repair store, and there was a photo of you signed to the <laughs> It was like right behind, over the guy's head at the register. There weren't a lot of them, but there were some, but there was a Lily Tomlin one, and I just wondered, what suitcase broke? <laughs> well, I have a heart, man. I, I, 
I, I had met, I was at another luggage store, and a guy came in, and he was the, the guy who had invented Hartman luggage. And Hartman was like a, a really strong, I've had Hartmans for like 30 years, and they, they never, the zipper never broke. I guess the zipper broke or the handle broke or something. I never even heard of Hartman luggage. I never saw this interview going towards a luggage place. <laughs> That's not how I envisioned it. Yeah. So at first, I was, I, you know, I was always like r- real faithful. If if I had a grocer or somebody in the neighborhood who wanted a, a photograph, like to put like up over the, you know, <laughs> ham hocks or something, I would <laughs> go get him a photograph and I'd bring it back like a week or, you know, a few days later. And yeah, you didn't just have it in your car. No, you wasn't no. like they didn't go. Oh, I really like your work, and then you took out a big purse. <laughs> I should have. I, if only I did those things. And did they tell you what to write, or you just think it up yourself? You know, when people say <laughs> sign it, and then they tell you, like, write to my best friend or something? Or do you, or do you ask Jane to do it? <laughs> <laughs> she wouldn't bother. She would, I, would, I, would, I would have enlisted her help immediately, but yeah. no, she'd be up there doing thinking about something deeper. Yeah. And I, in fact, I'd say to her, sometimes I'd say, uh, well, are you going to work on that new show, or what are you doing? And she said, and she's looking out the window. She said, "I'm thinking." And then I would call her up on the phone, and I hear the TV get turned down real fast. <laughs> and she says, "I'm thinking." <laughs> I, I see her like working, like over the, you know, over the computer or the typewriter or something with a, you know, with a fantastic play. And you're like, "Can you stop that and write these eight by tens for me?" <laughs> you know? Yes. That would be so good. Okay, Lily. <laughs> it is oh, I gr- forgot that well, we have you here for a reason, Yes, that's Lily. right. We have a reason, and it's as great as this is, science calls. Are you ready to take the PPP, the Poundstone Personality Survey? Okay, go ahead. Shoot. All right. We're going to ask you three probing questions. Then our computer will consider your answers and tell you what ringtone you'd be if you were a <laughs> ringtone instead of a human, which frankly would have changed your whole career. All right. All right, Lily. Uh... When your alarm clock goes off, how many times do you hit snooze before finally getting out of bed? I usually wake up before it even goes off, and I leap from the bed full of vim and vigor. Wow. I can picture that. Yeah. Because uh, you've got a stack of 8 by 10s Yeah. And they're not going to give themselves out. Question two. Have you ever gotten a pet that just wasn't giving anything back? No, but I had a doll once who did that. (laughs) (laughs) Just kind of laid there, staring at you. Yeah, that's what it did. Okay, question three. If you could play ping pong for an hour with anyone, living or dead, and don't pick someone dead just because they'd be easier to beat at ping pong. Uh, Okay, so who would you choose? I'd choose Bobby Riggs. Oh, that's a good one. That is a good one. And I'd beat the his tail off. Yeah, I bet you know you're you're a powerhouse at the tables, and I know that for a fact. So just him being beaten that <laughs> once isn't enough for you. You want him to suffer on the ping pong field of honor too. Yeah, I do. I want I want all the balls to him to be conquered, and all the fields <laughs> of balls. <him. laughs> okay, let's feed your answers into the computer and see what <laughs> ringtone you are. Here we go. <laughs> Here you go, Paula. Here are the results. Of course. Of, co- of course. I would have guessed this. You are the classic Nokia ringtone. 
You're everywhere. You're both eminently modern and pleasantly nostalgic, and your work is so ubiquitous that birds have copied you for their songs. That's true, by the way, of, of the Nokia phones. Birds in Copenhagen have been heard singing the Nokia ringtone. <laughs> Of course, we're far less impressed with those birds than with the ones whose song is one ringy-dingy, two ringy-dingy. <laughs> Lily Tomlin, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Paula. Thank you for having me. Lily Tomlin is an award-winning actor and comedian and writer. She stars as Frankie on Netflix's Grace and Frankie and as Miss Frizzle on the Magic School Bus Rides Again. Lily Tomlin, thank you so much for joining us here at the Institute. My great pleasure. Love you, Paula. Love you, Lily. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, the survey results are in, and we now know that 58% of you, that sounds high, have secretly planned an acceptance speech. See, I knew it. And you were kind enough to tell us a little bit about your fantasy speeches. Paula, want to share a few? Okay, here we go. We have some uh, responses. Have you ever secretly planned an acceptance speech? Yes. If so, give us a couple of lines. I would begin with, I didn't plan anything to say, but... <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, this person says uh, that they would uh, say, uh, this would have happened years earlier if my seventh grade teacher hadn't been so mean to me. <laughs> I, I love that one. I, I like holding on to the bitterness there. Yeah, yeah. I'm a little bitter towards a seventh grade teacher. What'd you do? Uh, it, or was he? A guy, it was a guy. He yelled at me one day and he said, you're argumentative, aren't you? How do you reply to that? Exactly. You could say yes, and then you're argumentative. Yeah. Or you could say no, and you're arguing right. with him. And even in the seventh grade, I knew that. <laughs> uh, um, anyways, okay. This one, the person says, uh, thank you. No, I really mean it, really. Do I get any money with this award? <laughs> I'm impressed by how much spontaneity people are building into their pre-planning. You know, everyone thinks about what they would say. What about you? I, I've never planned an, an acceptance speech. Oh, bull. Not, not, that, not that I can recall. Well, you know, Adam, uh, uh, here at the Poundstone Institute, you know, we have the annual awards night. Uh, and, uh, you know, we like to recognize Chief of Research, Adam Felber. Here's your oh, no. award. Oh, no. My God, and it's a giant trophy. Wow. These things really are heavy. Jeez. Well, I got to, first of all, I want to thank uh, Steven Spielberg and God. Um, this, is, this is really blowing me, knocking my socks off. Everybody, uh, thank you so much. Thank you to Paula Poundstone at the Institute. Uh, thank you to Doug Berman and uh, Ken Lezebnik and everybody on the team. There's no small players on this team. This team has played 100% all season long. So thank you very much. This is for you. That's a very beautiful speech. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that does it for today's show and for the first season of the Poundstone Institute. We hope you've all enjoyed the semester. And by the way, Trump University and Equifax are handling the billing. <laughs> Which should explain the substantial charge you find on your credit card statement next month. The distinguished chair of the Poundstone Institute is Doug Berman. Our undistinguished chair is Ian Chillog. Our folding chair is Mike Danforth. Our chair apparent is Ken Lezevnik. Our chair Jordan is David Green. Our sunny and chair is Franny Kelly. Our chair Aristotle is Connie Bridgeford. Our King Louis XVI chairs are Steve Nelson and Anya Grundman. 
huge thanks to NPR and to John Cohn and Southern California Public Radio. Thanks also to Bonnie Burns, the folks at Nerd Melt, and the Stevens College MFA in TV and screenwriting. Our technical directors are Patrick Murray and Stephen Cologne, with engineering from Tony Federico. Our theme music is by Oakland's own Californicorns. Live from the Poundstone Institute is produced by Urgent Haircut Productions in association with KPCC and is reluctantly distributed by NPR. You can visit us at poundstoneinstitute.org or find us on Facebook. Thanks to our head of research, Adam Felber. for listening to live from the Poundstone Institute. Are you serious? This is NPR?